Hello, or oh, good day everyone. Uh, my name is Brad Harper and I am an industrial design recruiter. This is episode 19 of Design Truth and today we've gone back down under to chat with Andrew Simpson, the brains behind an agency, Vert Design, over in Sydney. Um, we chat sustainability, Australian made, and what it's actually like to go outside. Um, so like always, if you enjoy Design Truth, um, then we only really ask you to ever do one thing and that's pass on the pod to someone else that you know that might be interested so thanks for listening and uh, catch up with you next time Design Truth listeners will know that when I rope Paul in, that, that normally means we're doing an Australian episode. H- how does it um, how does it feel to be on second time round, Paul? Uh, just as nervous as the first time. No, it's good. It's good. Do you remember uh, the first episode you did? Yeah. I think it was the guy's catapult, wasn't it? It was yeah, uh, good memory. Nathan, Nathan yeah. Troy at uh, catapult. Yeah, it was good. It was good. But it, it did. It. Um, I think it was... Um, a lot of interest, a lot of feedback, and I just think it's it's it's, it's just it's good information to share with, uh, with with designers the world over. I think it's a very common subject, and there's lots of synergy with what happens in Europe to what happens here to the states. Yeah, it's feedback was good stuff. Yeah, about ten to fifteen percent of our listenership is Australian, so we thought, why don't we give them something to listen to rather than having to listen to us over here. Um, you know, just another designer from Brunel or something, we thought, you know what, why don't we actually start roping in people that they actually know um, as a, <laughs> rather than just uh, us like over here. And um, obviously, welcome, Andrew. Um, there'll be lots of people that listen to this that might not know who who you are. Um, so it'd be great if you could just give us a very brief introduction to yourself and to, to Vert as well, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, fantastic. So yeah, I'm Andrew Simpson, uh, industrial designer. I'm the principal designer here at uh, Bear Design. We're based in Redfern, which is just outside of um, Sydney's CBD. Uh, so we've been practising uh, for 15 years. Um, we design a range of products. You know, uh, Australian market is um, a really interesting design market. We get involved in a lot of different uh, areas and industries, you know, it's uh, agricultural products, um, you know, through to the medical products and you know, standard um, design bread and butter of tech startups and you know, sport and recreation equipment and the full gambit. Mm. And what is life like out in Australia at the minute? Paint the picture of um, what's it like to go outside? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's particularly lovely. It's not like saving <laughs> at the moment. Um, it's uh, coming, you know, February, it's... You know, the nights start to get a little bit cooler, but the days are still long and it's 25 degrees Celsius and, um, yeah, it's particularly nice. (laughs) Yeah, we're um, we're recording this on the, um, it's the 3rd of February and uh, it's it's pissing down um, (laughs) down here. There's there's no way I can, I can't be subtle about it. So it's raining, it's miserable. And every now and again, I'll just get a text from Paul I think the last one he sent me was when he was um, cycling around a lagoon or something. <laughs> and um, it's a very different picture over here. But um, is everything okay? Because you was you was in lockdown, wasn't you, quite recently? You, you joined us in this lockdown yeah, thing. We did. We, 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 we joined the UK in, in lockdown, yeah. Um, Sydney had a, um, some cases up on the northern beaches, um, which put everybody into a bit of a panic. But... Uh, Australia, I think, did the right thing, came down hard and fast, and uh, the northern beaches were in lockdown, um, which I think started the week before Christmas and lasted until, I think, the week after New Year's. So it was hard and fast, and everybody adhered to the rules. And, you know, here we are with the the, the COVID numbers that are sort of good news. We, yeah. we, we've kept on top of it. It hasn't it hasn't run away with us, and I, and I think that's... Uh, that's a, a good sign to, to the Australian mm. people and that they conform and, and, and do what we've got to do. Mm. And Brad, just, just to put it in some context, the uh, the northern beaches is a peninsula to the north of Sydney. 
Hmm. Um, and it's commonly known as the Insula Peninsula because it's it's unlikely that anyone from the northern beaches leaves anyway. So they, they were calling it a, a lockout, not a lockdown or a lock-in. It was basically keeping keeping people out as opposed to keeping them in. <laughs> yeah, I actually um, I stayed no with you, Paul, up in the up in the northern beaches for about for a for, for, for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's um, yeah. lovely lo- lo- lovely up there. Um, so, would you would you say life is a hundred percent back to normal, or is it where where would you rank it between one and a hundred percent of normal? Um, I mean, well, obviously, we, it was a period of immense change. So, mm. and change um, has been very good, and you know we're sort of seeing some of the results of it. So, I think a lot of people had time to do less, uh, and I think which was quite good. Um, we <laughs> saw a. a you know, a surge in new product design um, opportunities. You know, I guess in, in you know we're in the business of change, I guess, and, and change created opportunity. Um, and I think that you know we're seeing that change in a whole bunch of areas. You know, people uh, looking at more different activities. You know, surfing's booming, and boat sales are are, are up, and people are buying you know camper vans and and um, doing more, I guess, family-based activities, you know, smaller adventures. Um, and, you know, it, it's, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of change that's going on. You know, changes in ways in which people are working, are refocusing on what they're doing. So, you know, in terms of the freedoms and activities we have, we're probably, you know, back to 90%. There's still some limitations oh. on the number of people you can have in venues and um, you have to wear masks on public transport. But... That that's sort of about the extent of it, is that about right, Paul? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're 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 waiting for. Uh, I think Scott Morris is going to Morris is going to announce any moment now that the social gathering numbers are going to sort of increase quite significantly, which means you know more more venues and concerts and and social gatherings are going to be okay as we start to uh, start to ease those restrictions. But mm. yeah, you're right. The the, the whole the whole landscape of, of working from home and, and just how it's affected people. Some really strange, you know, stats. You know, some of the some of the coffee shops and cafes in the middle of the CBD um, are still mm. not anywhere near full capacity because people are not going in the cities. But the regional mm. coffee shops at the end of your at the end of your street are seeing a booming business because because people mm. aren't going into the city, but they still want to go out for their walk or their cycle ride first thing. And are supporting the the local cafes and coffee shops. So yeah. the, the suburbs are suburbs are doing pretty well. Yeah, Paul, we, we do work for a number of coffee roasters, and and they can really measure that on a kilo basis. And they'll they'll rattle off to us. So this coffee shop was normally fourteen kilos, is now you know ten, where this one that was previously seven is you know, now up to fourteen. And they really track the movement of people around Sydney through kilos of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is. It is interesting. And I was speaking to, I was speaking to a candidate the other day that had this, um, the, the, this process that he would, on his way to work, he would leave the house, he would drive to work, he'd pick up a coffee and arrive at work, and, and that was his routine. Um, and because he didn't have to go into uh, the, the office, uh, he still had that he had to leave the house and get a coffee. So he would get ready for work drive to the coffee shop, get a coffee, drive back home and then start work. But for, for him, it was this routine and it fitted really well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So t- tell us about Vert then. So it sounds as if you're doing, you know, I had a look at the website and it was a little bit architectural and then there was some product in there. It was this kind of fusion of, yeah. of kind of definitely. stuff, stuff really. Is that, was that a conscious decision from day one, was it? Or is that something that's just evolved over time? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think, you know, we're practitioners in the design process, you know, and hmm. I, I do some lecturing at different universities and we teach the design process, you know, and it, it has a, a bunch of steps to it. Um, and I think, we're, you know, over the years we've been able to apply that process to a number of different industries and, and areas and um I can see that you know, less and less so. It used to be people say, oh, what do you specialise in or where do you specialise? I think, well, really we specialise in the 
and the process process yeah. to, for commercial gain you know and it's um you know, and really the, the things that we're interested in is is twofold on one side you know human attributes you know what's the cultural context of an object how do we have a you know, how does it meet our you know physical and emotional and cognitive needs you know where does it fit within you know the, the broader history of of um of that category of product or, or how we you know might do things as people and then on the other side are we interested in the mechanical you know and how are things made what are they made from um you know what are the, the processes and materials and and i think within those two understandings we're really able to do a huge range of of you know different products um because they all have that common commonality you know they're used by people or you know designed for the benefit of people and and they you know, are manufactured out of materials and, and have an existence. I think mainly the, the main way in which Fair Design has differed um, from other studios is we do do a fair portion of our time and it, and it, it fluctuates. I'd say it sort of sits around 30% of experimentation with mm. materials and processes, um, which we're then able to feed into new projects. And it really has been a uh, like a core to what we've done, you know, for the 15 years we've been trading. Um, and the, the, I guess the, the real payoff it has is it allows us to push the bounds of what's possible with uh, innovation and, and materiality and processes without taking that risk on our client's behalf. Mm. We sort of do it in our own time through our own experimentation. And it then creates a, um, a safe, innovative option that we're then allowed, able to apply to more commercial projects. Mm. I suppose that's that's the key agency side I've always found is that sometimes I, I look at some agencies and um, you look at the nature of the work and you think, well, where's the commercial gain in this? You know, it's it's art, it's very visual, but no one's making a return of investment on this. No, no one's, you're not mass manufacturing this thing. You know, it's just, um, I find that some is, is the subtle difference between one agency to another. Some is very experimentational and it's, it looks great, but then another agency would be about actually, you know, it's all about cost. It's all about getting the price point right. It's about build quality. It's all about all of these mm. different things. And I found that some, some agencies are just, that's the difference. Some it's all about the commercial gain and others it's a bit more about experimentation yeah, and um, and that real kind of front end stuff. What, what have been, I know it's a bit of a broad question, but what, what's been your main learning over those 15 years of being an agency owner? Because there'll be people listening that will be contemplating it. They'll be going through their own COVID mm. challenges or maybe they've lost a major client. I know we've certainly been there, Paul, haven't we? Where, you know, we've lost a client, you, you, you know, we're still an agency at the end of the day. You're still scratching mm. around thinking, okay, what do we do next? What's, huge, what's your main learning? I know it's a really broad question. It's a huge, huge question. I mean, I've learned so many different things. Um, uh, I guess one of the big surprising uh, things was that, you know, as a, a smaller agency, you know, and it's changed very much now as we've matured and got senior people, more senior roles. But in the early days, the the failings of the business were universally my own personal failings. You know? and, and, and it seemed a, a process as much as personal development and um, mm. and growth as it was about running a small business. And, and that that's improved and changed. But that was one of my first big shocks. That, um, uh, do, you guess, you to, you know, do you think you have to go through that, though, as a, as a small business owner? Do you have to go through those failures to, to define what it is you want to be doing long term? Uh, potentially, potentially not, you know, I no. think, well, I had to, it's, you know, as I said, it was a you know, <laughs> process of personal development. I learned that, that I have to do that apparently. Um, so I don't know if it's universal and I've seen other, um, you know, people in similar positions who, who haven't experienced that. Um, the, um, I guess some of the key takeaways, you know, you, you mentioned the scenario of people who might be in a similar position or thinking of, of starting a studio. And I guess I'd, I'd found over the years that the best thing I could really always do was make the most of the single opportunity I had in front of me. Mm. So, you know, able to be esoteric and, and, and planned, but nearly universally the best thing to do was a good job of the project I had in front of me. Mm. I mean, and, and that is a, that is a fallback a good, strategy. Yeah. 
Seem, yeah. seem to work again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. you're never thinking about you know the work you've got coming up, or you know, or if I win this project, it's let's just nail down this bit of work. We do a good job on it, and naturally, you know, we'll get a referral off the back of it, or you know, we'll get another, we'll get, we'll be able to quote again for the next piece. Focus on the work you've got in front of you, rather than thinking about, oh, you know, what have I got coming in next month? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, so, Andrew, you, you you started the business in in uh, two thousand and five, and you graduated from UTS Industrial Design two thousand and five. Was it was it was it a conscious decision that when you left university you had this vision that you were going to set up your own consultancy, or was it just one of the options that was open to you, or was the climate back in two thousand and five different that you know it was tough and you just decided to do your own thing? What was that thought process that decided I'm going to turn left yeah. and not turn right? No, I'd, I'd always. Um... Uh, wanted to run my own business. I come from a, a family of um, you know, business owners and service professionals businesses. Um, you know, my father worked as an engineer for large engineering firms and my mother ran a large management consultancy and I watched the difference you know, in, in what was available to them and, and what their um, you know, general fulfilment in work was like and, and I saw that, you know, for me, the stress and, and you know, um, unreliability of, of, of a, your own venture was more attractive than the, mm. I mean, the lack of autonomy but security that came from the you know, large multinational employer. Um, and so it had always been my goal uh, to do it and I'd been really working towards that. So I, I sat on, you know, even as a student, I, got, I sat on some advisory boards for some, uh, some service businesses and you know, and learned, and um, uh, and I, I guess I got pushed into it earlier than I would have liked to. I had been working at some other consultancies, um, and I pretty much got the sack there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I could sugarcoat it, but really, I got the sack. Uh, Don't worry, uh, we've I, not we've not got them coming on in five minutes. No, so no, like, no. This, like, this, like this is your life. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, we, uh, and look, I had been while I was a student worked as a glass blower, so I had a, a job in a glass blowing studio. And I ground and polished vases, then I'd worked my way up into the hot shop and made vases, and then I'd moved into you know designing for them. Um, so when I was you know unemployed, I went back and started making glassware and selling it, um, and was, you know made a reasonable success at that. So it was a, you know pretty interesting uh, endeavor like you, know, you said back to you wonder about how people are commercial it's a mm. really interesting um, microcosm of general business being a glass block because you have fixed costs of the you know rental of a studio the raw materials you use you know some labor that you might bring into it and you have to within your allotted time produce goods of a higher value mm. to your your costs you know and um and hopefully you know many margins higher and uh it was yeah, so I did that for a little while, um, and I was eventually going to starve to death. Like I, I could do it to a, to a level, uh, pretty quickly saturated the market that I had, and um, and I, uh, I had again, a friend of mine. It's a, but it's a process, right? So you, you've let, going back to the design process, the commercial process. You've understood fixed costs and you know all these kind of different things, and you just then <laughs> replicate that process to something a little bit bigger than what it is now. Yeah, definitely. And it was a really a fascinating learning. Like, and glass as a medium for design is fascinating as well because it's reflective and transparent. And you're making these objects that have some limited functionality. You know, glass has it's a range of areas where it's great, um, and it's a really good training for for design. You know, it's um, you have to think about you know really how you see glass is the distortion of light. You know, it's um, it's basically what you're viewing is the reflection or distortion of light. Mm. And, um, yeah, really, really interesting medium to, um, uh, to design in. And, and was really lucky that I got to know one thing very well. So mm. I spent four years working in the glass studio. And in that time, uh, I got to know a lot about glass I mean, and really got <laughs> to understand. You're the guy for, for yeah, glass. Which, which, which was, um, it was really good for, being, you know, the guy for glass, but also uh, 
it taught me how to know other things really well. You know, how to engage with a new process and learn about what its limitations are. And, and once you sort of start to understand, you know, how a glass bubble might expand into a mould and what surfaces touch the mould first and then how the material flows, well, that learning is applicable to, you know, understanding how plastic might meant, you know, into an injection mould or, I mean, it's, or how metal might move when it's being worked in a wheel, like the same understanding of the movement of materials and properties did allow me to get a foothold which allowed me to very well understand a bunch of other processes i just looked at you know everything from ski boots to the the soy fish light you know glasses of recycled material and the 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 uh, the, the, the interior sort of mantle design a, a real eclectic um awards that you've got and there was more as well on, on good design australia yeah thank you yeah that's um Thank you. What a ringing endorsement there. Um, <laughs> so just, just, on, just on the sort of Good Design Australia, um, you've obviously been, you know, part of the, you know, be, being the recipient of awards for, for some mm. great designs. But it, I noticed that you've, you've been sort of um, on the sort of uh, the judging panel. Have you gone the other side and you've judged on Good Design Australia? Yeah, I have. Um, I've judged a couple of years at, at Good Design Australia and I've also judged at some international awards, which was interesting. And for some reason, which I quite enjoyed, I got involved in the judging circuit for uh, advertising and marketing. I guess they saw that the input of some knowledge of design was beneficial, which I think broadly it was. Uh, so I judged at Khan uh, for the Khan Lions and, and was on a circuit throughout Dubai and Asia and which was fascinating. Um, it did make me think that industrial design, I mean, very much in Sydney, doesn't have so much of an awards culture. Like we do, you know, it's good to get an award, but I think it's... Um, it's a bit vanity though, isn't it, an award? Yeah, it's, I've, 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 I think I've worked it out. It's, it's the <laughs> same thing. When somebody says, please introduce yourself, uh, I find it terrible. I have to do it at least once a week. Yeah. I mean, and I've noticed other people and other industries go, I'm Bob, somebody from Thingo Accounting, and, and I do this, this, and this, and this is why I'm good. And I go, how did they, how on earth did they do that? And I, I worked at, I, I, for a while I studied Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, and I got put onto him by Dr. Cameron Tonkinwise, who's a great philosopher out of UTS. Um, and he, Pierre Bourdieu talked about these three forms of capital. He said we have like economic capital, which is you know, money I have in the bank or property or some you know, form of economic capital. Mm. He says I've got, I could have cultural capital, uh, which is my artistic merit or uh, a, a skill or attribute I have which allows me to, you know, I might be like a ballet dancer or it extends out to um, often prowess in sport and, you know, so this idea of cultural capital. And they said we might have social capital, you know, which is positions within society and status. Mm. So I think industrial designers are terrible at introducing themselves because we rely so heavily on cultural capital. And to express your cultural capital is to consume it, where uh, what the asking of tell us a bit about yourself or an award is, is an explanation of social capital. And um, for us, it's egregious. It's it's as tacky as yeah. saying, "I've got a million dollars and I'm really wealthy." Mm. Do you know what I mean it's it's just not? I'm an, I'm an, I'm an award-winning designer. Correct. It's yeah. because that should be inherent within my language and behaviour, or in mm. the output of my creativity. Once I have to point to it, it potentially says that it is of little value. Yeah, I think we actually we spoke about it to Casabel, didn't we, Paul? We said, "Do awards actually win you work?" Like, is there a correlation between winning a Red Dot Award and then all of a sudden you just get a boatload of inquiries the next week? Uh, is there this like correlation between the two, or is it just a marketing thing? Like, hey, well, we've won. There, an award. there definitely is for ad agencies and marketers. So mm. I spoke to a bunch of owners of marketing firms, and they said we won a Khan Lion, and the next week we won five big jobs. Mm. And and, and I, I would think that. That would never happen within industrial design. <laughs> we, uh, we did a, um, 
a Miro session the other week, you know, the, the, the digital whiteboard. I don't know if you use it, Andrew, like a digital yeah. whiteboard brainstorming thing. Yeah. And um, we did it with a few um, a few listeners of Design Truth, and we got together and just had a beer one evening and said, what do we do with this thing? People listen. You know, anyone got any weird and wacky ideas, and we'll steal them, basically. Someone came up with the idea of a TV show, which was horrendous. So um, that that's something that got a firm no. I've, I've realised that you, if you get creatives to come up with ideas, that some of them, they don't really think commercially. Now, there's no disrespect to them. Like, lovely people. Love the fact they've got, got all these ideas. But some of them, you just go, why have you said that? Like, this, this, <laughs> you know, this is not going to be a TV show. Um, but one of the one of the ideas that came about was actually an award. So, like, Design Truth Awards, mm. and um, I was speaking with um, uh, Matt Plested over at the Fuel Pool You're from the Allied. I don't know if you remember him yeah. from. Uh, yeah, he's actually going to be our episode twenty. So, shameless plug there. And um, he was talking about. I think the I think it was Red Dot or a European award he was talking about, and how it just started off as this like little thing, mm. and then and then like, people just love awards, like they love you know people will pay big money to like get an award, like it's like a mm. it's like a thing. Um, and then he kind of jokingly said, "Why didn't you do a Design Truth Award?" <laughs> you know, people will uh, people will want to have this association with um, with truth, but. Um, going wildly off topic there in terms of like um vert design what, what's the scale of size now how many how many employees have you got yeah, there? there's nine of us as full-time staff and then mm. we have two you know extra people and we call them kind of cut, or, you just kind of come yeah. in when needed basically yeah and that suits them and suits yeah. us so, um yeah a core team of nine which is i think if you look at the stats it's a manageable yeah. size for you know where everybody are design everyone in the studio are designers we don't employ anybody in non-design positions um partly that's possible because of the nature of modern outsourcing you know our accountants do bookkeeping yeah. um you know but we also i guess it's a very um like a, a really great team you know people that do look for improvements that could be made in our process or in our you know, communications and, and actively get in and, and make those improvements, mm. which is, um, yeah, it's a lovely thing to watch, you know, it must feel some ownership and, and um, yeah, which I enjoy. Yeah. With the sort of COVID situation uh, and international borders closed for a year and foreseeable for the whole of 2021, sort of historically, Andrew, have you have you reached overseas to 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 bring people to the business, or or have you yeah. just spotted talent that's doing their usual sort of um, working holiday visa? You've you've engaged with them, and they they've decided to stay. You know how how's that how's that worked for you in the past, and and has that sort of affected how if you were to to grow, how you might have to just purely look at the domestic market. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it, all of the all of the above, you know, we, we've uh, you know, engaged with international interns who've flown out and done their three month internship, and then we've sponsored them and kept them on. Um, we've you know picked up people off working holiday visas who are you know uniquely skilled and and sort of helped sponsor them to become Australian citizens. Um, we've also you know grown talent out of the local. Know, university graduates and um, employed from all nationalities and races and I mean and genders and sexualities. You know, so it's really been a, a wonderful uh, mix of people. Um, uh, I think you know, employing out of local talent, we have a, a returning expat population, which is quite interesting. Um, you know, I'm seeing people that. Uh, have come from you know larger design markets who have arrived home and are saying, well, you know, what what's the Australian scene look like and and where do I fit? And and um, I find that particularly interesting. You know, we, we in the danger of uh, of being you know big fish in a small pond. So you know, it's um it's really nice to bring in um, external influences. Um, you know, in terms of the closing of the borders, uh, it's it's been good. You know, we, we sit just south of of um, you know the world's the factory of the world, and uh, we've seen like an onshoring of, of manufacturing for years. We've 
really worked hard to back our local manufacturers, which hasn't necessarily been an easy task. And um, a lot of them are seeing uh, dividends at the moment, which is mm. um, just been quite quite good for us. Yeah, that's a really nice link actually to a um, a listener question that we had. Mm. A chat called Paul English, um, great surname. Um, and he was he, he he sent us a question on Instagram. I don't know if you if you saw it, but um, it was around reshoring in Australia. And he asked, "Do you think it's possible? Do you encourage your customers to think about Australia made? Do we need more government incentives to promote reshoring in Australia? Is the Australian customer willing to pay extra for made in Oz when they have been, become so used to the likes of IKEA, Target, yeah. and Kmart?" I remember when I was there, Paul, and we were kind of walking around Woolies and things like that. And I was like, it's very American out here. It's very harsh and you, it's it's, yeah. um, it's it's not subtle. You know, you go to a you go to a um a place that sells doors and they'd be called doors, you know, that, that would be the name <laughs> of the shop. You know, it is things like that used to make me there's no subtlety. And then um, the last question was, you know, where would a designer look to find the right Australian manufacturer for their product. Um, yeah. Has that been has that been something that's coming up, particularly it with is, COVID and China and you know all that kind of weird stuff? For, for the first number of years, I can't say exactly how many. Like five or seven years of, of trading, we only used local manufacturing um, mm. and built some really strong relationships with with Australian manufacturers. Um, at some point we were no longer offering the best service to our clients by doing so. And we had to expand out and get things made internationally. Um, there's a really interesting thing is that China is the factory to the world. So, you know, when we work with a factory in China, they're also working with Danish designers and Swiss designers and they're selling product in Uganda. And I mean, it, it's, um, the knowledge base and the ability to invest in capital when you have that size market is substantial. So what we see in Australia is that there aren't fundamentals that make them uncompetitive. A lot of the metrics, you know, if we look at injection moulding, which is, you know, the bread and butter of mass manufacturing, the machines are German or Japanese. You know, the commodity plastics based on the Singapore oil price doesn't vary from Australia or Shanghai, and you know, a lot of machines are either fully automated or partially automated. So, I mean, the, the inherent cost within the production, it doesn't vary. Uh, you know, it's things like tool making where we get the big variations in price. Um, the, the question had a whole bunch of parts to it. So yeah, it, it's, it's like, definitely... It's a, it's a multi-layered question. <laughs> it does, yeah. So it's, it's definitely possible to manufacture things in Australia at a... Um, price competitive way, and I can demonstrate, you know, fifty products in which we've done that. Um, the there is a, a, a couple of differences. The customer doesn't care is, is what we've as sadly what we've worked out and worked it out in big projects, you know, run with multinational brands and where Australian made is at the front and a unique point do of view. Do you think they'll start to care though? Uh, well, I've I've got a little Venn diagram that'll show you this. It's, um, so basically, we, we could say that a product has a functional benefit. You know, it meets a, does a thing, it has a, you know, but an action has a functional benefit. Yeah, there's, sure, a, there's, a blue, there's a Bluetooth speaker in there and it's, you know. Correct, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it has to, it does a thing. So no functional benefit, no product. You know, if you don't meet the base functional needs, you've got no right to, to sell it. People buy you know, depending on what category, but they buy emotionally. You know, it, it allows them some better version of themselves or an opportunity for, you know, freedom and relaxation or, you know, to relieve some nagging stress about the general disorder of their lives. You know, that that's the why people buy. And then they then have to post-rationalise their purchase and that's a cognitive benefit. So sadly what we've learned is that, you know, not in all categories but in, in the vast majority, um, uh, sustainability, Australian made, and price uh, fall very squarely in a cognitive benefit. Mm. So it's not to say that it's not a reason for people to buy, uh, but it still needs to lead with highly functional and you know emotive design that that, that touches people. And without that ticked off, the, the um, Australian made makes no difference. No, you wonder with uh, you know Greta Thunberg and Attenborough and. 
all these, you know, Netflix big push on things like sustainability, you go for this younger generation and products that are aimed at that younger generation, I'd imagine that sustainability is probably right up there with what they'd be after. Yeah. So maybe just, a, I don't want to kind of go too deep into this, but if a product's aimed at a younger person, I'd imagine that'd be quite high on their list of, and whether that changes with age, you know, as they go through education, as they start to go through the work, the amount of young yeah. designers, Paul, that will come to me and they want to change the world. And then you talk to them three years after a job and they start to say, oh, it's all about costs. It's all about, you know, getting things for return on investment. And it's not about saving the planet and things like that. It almost gets like beaten out of them. And you wonder if as they, as they just get older, they always say you get a little bit more conservative as you get older. Um, you wonder if that, sustainability thing isn't actually yeah. going to be that high on there and, and maybe it more aligns with what you mentioned there in terms of kind of people buy emotionally i don't know but i just feel that this well, younger I, generation I, I, have a very different way of looking at life yeah I, I think sustainability is changing quite a lot so the the articulated the view you gave just there is what we'd maybe call a historic sustainability and and historically sustainability attracted the worst designers okay and again i was part of the sustainable design uh, foundation that again came out of UTS and uh, yeah, Dr. Cameron Tomkin Wise, who I mentioned before, is, is very much a, a someone I look up to. He ran it and he articulated it very well. He said that you know it, sustainable design routinely attracted the worst designers, and partly because it was a shifting of the goalposts. So you know you might design a an elegant chair that um, you know what I mean that was ergonomic and beautiful and, you know, had, had a lovely use of materials and my chair's, you know, a bit clumsy and ill-proportioned. Well, I shift the goalpost to say, well, mine's sustainable and yours not. And it was a way of making other people wrong. Um, that, and you can see that through the protest movements of the, you know, the 70s and, and I guess a, a thing we see with larger brands where if they made a sustainable change, that often opened themselves up to further criticism as opposed to people who'd called for the change rallying behind them. So we'd call that historic sustainability. I think it basically has reached a crisis point where that cohort who was interested in shifting the goalposts and, and being, you know, other people being wrong uh, are now more and more becoming the minority to people who say, well, actually, we've only got one planet, there's limited resources, we just need to get on with it. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, was a... You know, Ver design is French for green. It's sustainable design, and, and we've tried and periodically succeeded at implementing sustainable design. Um, it's, uh, it's hard, though, saw, right? Pardon? It's hard, though, isn't it? Very, well, it, very it, hard. It's not very easy. Hard. Mm. And it's very hard because designers are uniquely ill-positioned to change the the economic, social, political you know, organisational capital investment that are the leading drivers behind unsustainable action. Mm. And so designers can identify the problem. We understand the ramifications. We understand our role within it. But our ability to actually make meaningful change is quite limited. Mm. So, you know, you think the, the history of industrial design is around generating demand. We grew, you know, out of the 1950s in a post-war boom in a way to sell more televisions you know, the, that's the how grand history. Um, you know, so from the position of a profession that generates demand, how do you address unsustainable consumption? Hmm. You know, and then the actual palette of, you know, opportunities are quite limited. So, you know, one thing we've done is generate demand for waste. So we've looked at systems and said, you know, waste is just an inefficiency. You know, it's basically... Everything is waste if you, you know, wasted or, you know, in nature there is no waste. So we've created um, products where we use its, you know, providence or its origins as a uh, driver and have produced demand for waste and it's been quite successful. Um, and other things we do is look at the, the general uh, harm and, you know, the system in which a product exists within. It's about 45 minutes and i was just one thing that i wanted to talk about whilst you was on because of your educational stuff mm. and i didn't know if you had any yeah. thoughts around the last you know I, 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 I literally the last episode we did and 
I hit the button on it yesterday was we had eight design graduates on in the UK and they mm. spoke about their experiences over the last 12 months, you know, finding a job, mm. working remotely, very candidly people kind of said what their experiences were. They were very kind yeah. about their lecturers and things like that. It wasn't one of those kind of sessions. It was about the, the realities of work and, you know, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be very interested to see these designers in 18 months 20 24 months where they're stacking up in comparison to those that have been in an office environment have have, have had access to all the kit all those kind of stuff so we'll see how it goes for them but um I, you're a lecturer aren't you and you're in your own kind of right so yeah, how, how, how have you found the last 12 yeah, the last I, 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 I got a little bit of dinner before this and of walking down to the Japanese restaurant I ran into an old student and um, he graduated two years ago. Um, actually, we'll probably get him in to show his folio. He's doing some, but it was just interesting. He left, he got a job at a business that um, uh, provided uh, equipment to airlines. So, you know, right. uh, food trays and um, was designing you know, that sort of uh, toiletries that go for uh, airlines. Um, they were obviously very early affected by the coronavirus and he left there and, and uh, picked up a job at a consultancy which had a Australia's largest airline as their main client. Um, and so that didn't work out so well for him either. Um, and he's, he's very talented. He's been able to pick up more work and um, and I think we'll get him into his folio. But I think that's interesting, you know, a young graduate having a very disrupted, you know, very talented. He would have been the better graduate from the course I was teaching, um, very you know, but the cohort that's graduating now, uh, it's been a very tough time for them. You know, it, industrial design, as much as we teach it at university, is at its core applied arts. You know, it's um, the best way to I look at the nature of design education and it's a, it's an act of doing. You know, you, you set a brief, you physically go through the steps of producing concepts and, you know, generating CAD models and prototypes and, um, you know, it, it can be taught in a whole bunch of other ways other than the tertiary system. You know, it's, it's one of the sort of tragedies in Sydney is that the TAFE system has been eroded and that they often produce some of the far better designers. Um, so I think when people are having to practice an applied art remotely is, is quite difficult, you know, because it's as much the creative communities and the, the cohort of peers that you work with that, um, you know, create the work ethic and, and, you know, strive to, you know, this isn't good enough, this is good enough, you know, that all comes from the peer group in which you're with. And I think with the removal of that, it's quite challenging for the students. Um, I think the design education in general is also quite challenging at the moment um, and partly because uh, of the growth and, I guess, spreading out of design uh, and industrial design into other areas, you know, we think here at the studio, we 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 sell a product that is design thinking, you know, and we'll we'll be asked into non-design areas or non-manufacturing areas to apply our conceptual process and design thinking process to other problems, and it, it's quite successful. Um, you know, we're also uh, involved in user experience, and we need to know about uh, electrical engineering and manufacturing and mechanisms and the actual base of knowledge and what industrial design can do is so broad and i think universities have tried to um, touch on all of those attributes you know if you look at a, a undergraduate designer at the moment they'll do programming of robots um they'll do you know uh, arduino and you know coding user experience graphic design um and at the expense of what was the traditional core applied art subjects of, you know, drawing, CAD modelling, uh, prototyping, uh, base understanding of manufacturing, engineering drawings, these things that were at the core of what industrial design was. And with a, a course that goes from four years now to three years with trimesters, they are really just uh, touching very lightly a range of subjects instead of being very core to what their understanding is. Um, which is a complex problem to solve because, yeah. you know, a lot of the graduates won't go into what was a traditional 
you know, industrial design making things career, they will go into service and user experience and, you know, design thinking and they'll end up working in an accounting firm. Do you know what I mean? And um, a lot more money as well. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Um, but I wonder that, you know, what made industrial designers attractive in those areas was a mode of thinking which came out of this, um, you know, the tools in which we have. So I often think that you, know, you can look at the design process just as a, a way of overcoming you know, a range of human cognitive biases. You know, we just we don't think particularly well in a range of areas and design provides a whole bunch of tools that help us think better. You know, it's drawing a picture of your idea it was a great way to get it out of your head and evaluate it and make a bunch of decisions around its um, its form and functionality and be more objective about it. Um, and I wonder if, you know, would still provide students with the opportunities in, in you know, lateral careers if we just did focus back on the core um, discipline of industrial design. And whether, what's, whether the changes are actually um, of benefit to those that want to do that more let's say the jobs that you did when you went, you know, you, mm. your own agency mm. is programming of robots, really a, a relevant uh, um, yeah. module. If you want to be an industrial designer, I don't know, IDE or something like that, Paul, you know, it, there's, yeah. it's like, it, it's not, it's not, is it? No. And it's, it's interesting. I know it's a bit of a, 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 a gripe for you, Brad, but I know you were on the, on your soapbox about, how uh, the definition industrial designers have been hijacked by UX and UI industry. And you'll see a title industrial designer. When you dig deeper, there's there's no product. It's it's all about the the, the service and the the journey of the consumer. Well, I find myself every week saying, someone says something about product, I go, we're talking about actual product, right? And they go, no, 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 we design banking product. Okay, sorry. Yeah, back in the room. Andrew, it's interesting what you say there, uh, because from from my side, the fence, I've seen those people as as Brad says, says, the the UX uh, salaries are, are quite high, but I've seen people that have been tempted to go from a physical product into uh, UX UI where they're working in the financial sector and it's all about that journey of the consumer from the moment they get on the app on their phone or to when they w- walk into you know the, 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 the bank in the CBD but what's happening now is that some of those designers are feeling that they want they want to see an end result that's physical they want to see the kudos of having a product on the shelf or, or seeing that they've made that difference because some of the work they're doing is is very much a, a, a sort of a, a theoretical exercise to satisfy the shareholders or to, to satisfy the, the bank that they've they're looking after their customer and their customer experience. And and some of the projects they've worked on might take you know four to six months, but they give a report, it gets looked at and it gets filed. It will never be instigated. So a lot of those industrial designers are turning around saying, I'm keen to get back into something that's a physical product. Yeah, I think I think what I think what will happen, or if it's not happening already, is that agencies, the traditional product agencies, will diversify their offerings to their clients. So digital will form a part of that. So you'll see UX UI designers work at I don't know like PDD pool or well, they'll have they'll have it's all, yeah it's all, that will be the 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 part of their offering and the usp will be the, the the fact that it's digital design that's correlating with a physical product whereas a lot of digital designers and i i, I don't touch the stuff i mean I, I don't really get a lot of it but when i have tried to help a client or have helped a client with kind of ux ui people i found that it's sometimes it's like very very digital and there isn't this kind of physical interface at any real point and so it's this kind of hybrid of the connected experience or service to a physical bit of hardware. Mm. That is where the the kind of the sweet spot will be for these kind of traditional agencies who are probably now bolting that into their service they're offering to their clients. It's like, hey, we don't just look at the the actual thing you can throw at a wall, but we're looking at the app that, that can kind mm. of associate and the, and the service design. Um, so that, that's what will happen. And maybe that will be a, a route for product designers that are going into digital is that actually you'll find that the, the, the employers will now start to 
have build those kind of UI UX um, teams mm. as, part, as, as part of a wider. Well, I think it's been happening for thirty years potentially. Like if you look at IDEO, you know, really was one of the first to do it, and I think Frog Design was quite interesting. They had a, um, a attempt at entering the Australian market for design thinking uh, maybe yeah. three or four years ago, um, yeah. and I think we sort of came across. But nothing of scale though. Nothing of like. I can't think of many companies that we've yeah. worked with over the last seven years, but where they've had a UX designer working with the industrial designers. It's almost like getting to a point where like every organization will have yeah. an industrial designer and a UX designer working kind of parallel with each other. I don't think that's been the case for the last mm. 30 years, um, to my knowledge. Well, it's interesting you talked about, you know, an artifact and a desire to see one, you know, as a result of your work. Then we can talk about like, objectivity and subjectivity. I, I, so I, I do a lot of offshore yacht racing. I've done 10 Sydney to Hobart. So I race on you know, big 80-foot yachts. It's very competitive. And um, I found a, a really interesting thing with sailing because it's a team sport and it's a highly focused team sport. But actually the – and, you know, people are paid as professional sport. Um, but it's – nearly universally subjective as to the quality of the sailor. Mm. So if we've got a team of 20 people and the boat performs in a certain way, well, why did it perform that way? Was it Paul's trimming? Was it, <laughs> no, was it, was it my helming? Was, was it the, the way in which the, do you know what I mean? So, so you end up with this whole bunch of subjectivity and uh, a subject, like a, an environment where values determined subjectively is a really terrible environment to be in because mm. One of the best ways to achieve subjective value is to criticize us um, because, you know, if I criticize your trimming, well, it shows that I know more. Do you know I mean? And I've focused that you're necessarily doing the, the wrong thing. So I've often thought that's one of the great things of industrial design is that we have at the core these objective truths. Do you know what I mean? Like objects exist and they're pleasing and they work. And, you know, back to that thing I was saying at the start about, you know, cultural capital or social capital, like to, to have an object that, that works just allows you to relax. You know, we have <laughs> at our core fundamental skills that people can't take away from us. Mm. So we, we know about how to calculate the load on something and we can design these things and we can draw pictures and make models and, you know, produce, you know, go home and make a boat. Like, and it's really grounding and lovely because they're objective. And then I can I can relax. I don't need to tell you that I'm good at something or be praised or because I can. It's true, you know? And, and uh, I think this that, is the thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 an objective truth. And I think you know if I look at uh, stylists who are highly necessary uh, to the success of products and, and do a great job, but at the core of their work is often a subjectivity. So I mean that. that what who is the best stylist? The one who's perceived to be the best stylist, and there's often a lack of objective truth there, mm. and uh, they have to work so hard to manage their reputation, brand, and, and I think it's a tortured existence where we can relax a little bit more. And, yeah. yeah, I think that that that's um, if you think about the jobs that we do, Bill, a lot of it is turning the subjective into the objective, right? So, a CV comes in. Mm. And um, portfolio. A lot of clients say, I don't really know what I'm looking for until I see it. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't actually, I, I don't know what I'm looking for, but it's like when I see it, I, I'll know what I'm seeing. That happens all the time, doesn't it, Paul? Where it's like they don't really have an idea. So you turn it into the objective. So it's like, okay, you're probably going to want someone that's done agency, done this, done that. You just have a tick box. And you know, if you tick most of those boxes, you've probably turned that subjective thought to something a bit more objective. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, um, I suppose, what we do in a weird way, Paul, if I was to try and explain it to someone. It's like getting that thought in the head of, this is what I want as a hire. But most companies have patterns, right? So it's like most people will, they tend to employ people from a certain university or they'll be from mm -hmm. certain backgrounds. If you ever look at past employers, they'll, a lot of them will be, oh, a lot of them have done consumer electronics. You know, if you look at if you actually look at the the people they've hired, sorry, it's probably a good place to start to turn in that subjective. Oh, I don't really know what I'm looking for to something that's mm. objective. So we we that's probably our daily job, Paul, is like getting into the mind of a designer and like actually trying to figure out what it is that they actually are looking for. Um, yeah. 
into like just a couple of bullet points of like, okay, it's going to be this, this or this, that, that, that stands you the best chance of them saying, yep, yeah, I like this one. Let's bring them in. Um, and, and, and Andrew, you know, it's a classic question that, that lots of candidates ask us and we, we do try and advise them as best we can. And we've sort of collated some, some sort of information that we share with graduates, but you know, you, you see a lot of CVs and a lot of portfolios coming across your desk and your, your your computer, you know, for you, what 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 are the sort of the the the, the touch points that will mm. will make you stop and reread that CV again and yeah. think this person's got something different than the other twenty that I've just looked at? It, I mean, it, it's basically it's brutal. Like, and it's um, you get so many folios you know, of such a high standard that you know I, I run it through some of the students to teach and just sort of. And I said, don't don't judge me, don't be too harsh on me. But this is what we do, you know. When you open it up, you scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, whatever. It's not about empathy, right? Like it, isn't it? And, and 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 that's it. We've looked at a folio and you go, Jesus, Jamina. I know that someone put their work into that, and it's the expression of years of learning. And um, but it's just the sheer volume we get that that's the the reality. Um, so I think I think I say to people is. The best folio you can find uh, online is the standard. So, I mean, it, it's not the standard isn't your graduate that you've studied with or, you know, someone that you know. The standard is the best standard you can find. And I guess the other thing with folios is it's take out the worst things or, the, the you know, it's, it's not an example of your progression as a designer. It's an example of the current best work you can do. And what we'll routinely see is someone feels it should be a certain size. So they've put in 10 projects and, you know, one of them's great, hopefully their latest one. And then, you know, there's five that are sort of okay and there are four that are terrible. And you go, well, just take out the terrible ones. Do you know <laughs> mean like, and show us the example of what you can do today? Because that's what we're looking for is applied skills. And, you know, we're thinking, what work do we have coming in? What work would we like to be attracting? And does this person have the tangible skills that will let us deliver that? Um, that's it's one, it's one of those subjects where I think it's not it's not that complex. It's mm. you just said that you you say you give the advice and the advice is, it hasn't changed for years. You know, <laughs> it is it is what it is. But but so many people just get it wrong. Mm. And I, I've been speaking to a lot of people. Re- recently about it and i think it's one of those unfortunate truths where a lot of a lot of people that go through the system aren't actually that great yes and that because universities are businesses Mm. i genuinely feel a lot of the time that people shouldn't actually be going through the system there should be like a it's a hobby it's not a job it's a hobby and we should never take that away from anyone and they should be able to still express themselves but to have have Sorry. But to have a have a career in it, you know, you're not going to get the job at this company because yeah. it's just not good enough. And it doesn't matter what portfolio advice you go on, what videos you watch, tutorials, all this stuff. It's just There's not good. No it's just just not good. It's just not. It's just not good enough. Uh, that's just um, the unfortunate truth. But a, a thing we've seen is, you know, I think I've noticed it. I meet people in the you know, broader community who have never studied a day of design mm. um, and are at their heart designers. You know, I meet guys in, you know, the back blocks of Canberra welding up motorcycle frames and yeah. every nuance of the way they approach it is is that of excellent design. Do you know what I mean? And, and with no formal training and they just have the essence of a designer. Uh, and then I'll see other people that have studied an undergraduate and a postgraduate and, and just aren't designers. Mm. You know? and, and it's um, I often think... Well, it's not my idea. It was one of the senior designers here said he always thinks about a design studio like a band. And I think it's such an interesting analogy you know, because it, it is like a band. You know, we've all got different roles we play in, but, you know, what we really want is people that fit in and they don't disrupt the creative flow. And, do you know what I mean, we, we feel some sort of, um, you know, energy with working with them and ideas build on each other. And, you know, I guess like, like auditioning for a band member, I wonder how... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You, you quantify that sort of attribute to it, but also like a musician, you know, 
knowing what the notes are is very different to being able to play, you know, something that, that's um, exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, that's a good quote. I'll steal that one. Yeah, good. Thank you for listening to episode 19 of Design Truths. Uh, 20 seems like a little bit of a landmark, and uh, Drew's going to be back, and we're going to be joined by Jim and Matt over at The Fuel. Um, appreciate the support as ever. Uh, pass on the pod. Uh, but more importantly, just look after yourself. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.